Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. Good morning, White Sulphur. It's good to see you all. Uh, We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. So go ahead and turn there and give you a head start, starting in verse uh, 12. But before we get there, just a couple of uh, quick housekeeping things. So I, we've been pushing this for a couple of weeks. This is the, the membership form. This is not just for new people. In fact, uh, our priority right now are the people that are members. Right? We, we want this refilled out so we have current information. We're trying to reconcile a couple of different uh, records in the office at the moment so that we have an accurate list of of who our church is. And let me give you a little bit of the pastoral perspective on this, not just the uh, practical bookkeeping perspective. So uh, as the pastor, I feel this sense of burden to shepherd well the sheep that are part of this church, right? The people that are part of this congregation. Um, And a tool like this is really important to me so that I know who they are, right? Who are the people that have covenanted with us to be part of this church? The people that have said, no, I'm a member of this church. This is my family. These are the people of God that I'm going to commit to, to worship with, to serve with, to glorify God with. And so that's why this is important to me and other people like Allison have reasons why it's important to them. And uh, there's just a lot of good reasons to take the time to fill this out. Now, as I'm talking about that, uh, we're, I, I'm putting together a, like a new members class that is going to be launching in the spring. And, and part of the plan for that is uh, for people that have been attending, people that are here on a regular basis to help them take that next step into membership. So it's going to be just a one week thing, right? It's a quick overview. This is what it looks like to be at White Sulphur. This is what it looks like to commit to being part of the church here, to serve with us, to glorify God, to advance the kingdom together. And so we're going to be doing that. And I would encourage you just to keep an eye out, keep an ear out as uh, more, of, more information on that develops. I think that'll be something that you are uh, definitely going to be interested in. But one last thing and one final push for this. Uh, if we could get two people, we're literally two people short of having a rotation for children's ministry on Sunday mornings. That would be wonderful. So if you're sitting there uh, and you aren't serving in a place or you think you could take on one more thing once a month is what we're asking to commit to once a month doing this. Um, we have a place for you to serve. And you might say like, well, it's not my gifting or I'm, I'm not that great with kids. Let me let me just say that God uh, provides uh talent and ability and skill when we're faithful to step into what he's calling us into. Uh, And so don't worry about that. When uh, the very first ministry position that I was ever interviewing for, uh, for youth ministry, uh, I, I was terrified of public speaking. I mean, to the point where I would almost throw up, right, thinking about having to go to the pulpit and talk in front of people. Um, I would pass out in the shower the morning of thinking about what I was about to be doing, right? And so I'm in this interview, and they said, what do you think, uh, <laughs> what do you think is your biggest weakness? And at that time, I said, public speaking, right, which is literally what they were hiring me to do. And so somehow I still got hired there, but I was just being honest. Like, th- that's my biggest weakness is I'm absolutely terrified of public speaking. So if you are terrified of being in a room with some kids for, I don't know, 45 minutes and playing some games and a short little Bible lesson that is literally handed to you in an app, right, uh, with the curriculum that we've purchased, I think you can do it. I believe that you can, you can step into that. You don't have to be afraid. 
You don't have to be uh, talented or gifted initially, that those things can grow as you step in and and are faithful. So, all right, housekeeping stuff behind us. Uh, Let's pray, and then we're going to look to Philippians 1. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our church. In this this little church um, on the corner of a couple highways, a couple roads, that you're doing something amazing here that People's, people's lives are changing because of your gospel. That there's darkness in our community being pushed back as we engage and as we step outside the walls of this church, but there's also darkness in our hearts being pushed back as we trust you, as we walk towards you, as we uh, seek to be more faithful, as we come to you in prayer, as we commit to, to time to reading our Bibles, to studying our Bibles, to just loving your words, sitting at your feet and hearing what you have for us. We're seeing the fruit of these things. Father, we're going to read about Paul and his faithfulness, even in dire circumstances. And I pray that for the future of this church, whether it's a year, five years, or 50 years down the road, but this church would always be marked by a sense of conviction and an ability to withstand enjoy whatever the world or the enemy throws at us pray that we would remain faithful that we would not cave as cultural pressures increase and that we would love the outside world well through it all i pray these things in jesus christ's name amen all right philippians 1 12 through 26 So, so far, uh, Paul has introduced himself, he's introduced the people he's with, he's addressed the people that he's writing to, he's writing to a church that he cares very much about, Um, and then we get this prayer from Paul last week, where he says, this is what I've been praying for you, this is what I want for you, I love you, I want this to be the things that we see in you, right, all this is happening, and uh, at the time that Paul is writing this, he's in prison, And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that, that this isn't a free man that's writing. This is a man who is in prison, who's under watch by Roman guards, and yet we've called this series like Contagious Joy, which is so upside down, right, from what we would expect, because uh, I can't imagine being in prison under a tyrannical government and just oozing with joy as I'm writing letters to people that I care about. We've said that this is kind of a joyous farewell for Paul. Uh, Because he knows that likely his execution is around the corner for preaching the gospel because he will not shut up about it. Um, And he he knows that he needs to send this letter to the churches, the ones he especially cares about, the ones he's invested in, uh, because he needs to say a few final things before he's gone. He needs to establish some credibility for the leaders that are coming. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. To make this personal, so when you think back to your childhood... Right? Maybe it's your teenage years, maybe it's your college years, whatever the case may be. I would suspect that you had some plans. Right? You, you had a, a, a way that you thought this was all going to go. That you had a career path that you were going to follow. Maybe you were going to go to that very special school you got accepted into, your grades were good enough, and that was your plan. Maybe uh, it was a trade school. You were really excited right, about... Uh, going into welding or plumbing uh, uh, or some other trade, cosmetology, like whatever the case may be, that was your plan. You're going to go do that thing, right? You're going to go do that. And and you could see it so clearly. You could see exactly how it was going to happen. You could see each step before you. Maybe you had plans to to raise a large family. Maybe it wasn't just about your career, but that didn't pan out. Maybe that wasn't possible. Maybe you had plans to travel the world, right? That didn't pan out. 
that wasn't possible. And if your story's something like mine, uh, in high school, 16, 17, 18 years old, I, at the time I felt this deep sense of uh, duty to serve my country. You know, I come from two generations of veterans that served for over 20 years each. And so it was like, it was my time, right? Like, I, this is my turn to get to do that. And I was so excited. I basically skipped to the recruiting office, right? And I, I sign up and I, I go to MEPS. And, and long story short, there was actually some medical things that kept me from being able to join. And in that moment, I remember riding back home on the bus after getting denied and thinking like, I don't even know who I am right now because I had that so clearly planned out for myself, right? I knew exactly what I was going to do. I knew exactly what I wanted to be in the military. I knew exactly the day that I wanted to retire from the military. Like, I had it all planned out. And in that moment, my dreams are kind of just in pieces on the floor. And I'm thinking, this is not the picture that I had in my mind for the last several years. This is not how I thought this was going to go. And it's easy for us, if we're not careful to to look at people like Paul and think that everything just went perfectly for them, right? Because uh, a lot of teaching and a lot of Sunday school classes, they tend to hit on the highlights of people's lives in the Bible, but that we tend to glance over or glaze over the the nitty-gritty, right? The things that didn't go quite so well. And again, remember, this letter was written in prison. I mean, by all outside accounts, this isn't going well. This isn't what Paul had in mind, we can look to Proverbs, and there's many verses that hint at this idea that although we plan, God determines what really happens, right? Although we plan, God might even laugh at us, like in a non-cynical way. Paul's had this dream of taking the gospel to these cities, these, um, these centers, uh, these hubs of trade, right? Where people from all over the world are coming there to do their trade, to do their business, and then going back home. And so Paul's strategy is that he's going to go to those kinds of cities, preach the gospel, and it'll naturally carry itself back all over the world. He's thinking, this is the most effective way for me to do this. And so he does it. He goes to Ephesus, right? He goes to Philippi. He goes to Athens. His heart's set on Rome. He's like, I'm going to Rome. Like, that's, that's the biggest fish in the pond. That's the center of the known world. That's the epicenter of power and influence. That's where there's a man who sits on a throne that thinks he is God. And Paul says, I'm going to go there and I'm going to tell him about the true God, the real God, the one that he's not. This is Paul's dreams. He dreams of preaching in town squares and synagogues and pagan temples and political courts. Paul is going to take the arrow of the gospel and shoot it straight into the darkest place that he can possibly find. But God's plans are different. God's plans are still that Paul would end up in Rome, but not the way that Paul planned to end up in Rome. God's plan for how this would play out was much different than Paul's. And that's kind of where we pick up this morning in verse 12. Paul's writing to this church at Philippi, and he's beginning to explain, right? He's got hard news to deliver. They already know some of his situation. And he's thinking, how am I going to do this in a way that doesn't crush them? Because it's the last time that they're going to hear from me. And so we pick up in verse 12, and I'm going to read it for us. He says, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard 
and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything. But that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So Paul knows that he's in a tight spot, right? He's in a Roman prison. He's not going to stop talking about the gospel. He knows that that will likely lead to his execution. And yet he still hangs on to this bit of hope that maybe he will see them again. And if he doesn't see them again in this life, he's going to see them in the next life. And then they get to sit around the table in that moment. Right? They get to sit around the table and take all the time that they want and share all the good food that they want and tell of the stories of how God was good to them and how God worked in these situations. But our first point this morning is that God is all-knowing. He knows the best way into dark places. He knows the best way into dark places. And this is often going to look different than how we would get there. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. That's an unexpected consequence, right, of Paul being in prison. Instead of crushing spirits, instead of the church saying, oh, we're, we're defeated, this isn't going to work now. Like our hero, Paul, our leader, our shepherd, he's in prison, he's going to be executed. No, no, it's emboldened the people. It said, look what God is doing in this. So when you survey your life and you think back to the hard things, to the unplanned things, to the ways that you have suffered, can you say with Paul, whoa, this actually served to advance the gospel? See, Paul's taking an eternal perspective to his suffering. Paul's saying that my, the, what is happening to me, the way that God is using me as a tool, the way that God is pouring me out in this moment is for much more than this moment. It's for an eternal situation. When we suffer, we tend to do one of two things. At least I do. Then do one of two things. The first is that we either um, we tuck it down deep, right? We bury it. We don't talk about it. We don't bring it up. We have nothing to do with it, and it just kind of festers down there. And the other option is that uh, you you 
uh, bring it out and it consumes you, right? It takes control. It destroys you. It's all that you can think about. It completely overwhelms you. These are the two things that we tend to do when we suffer, when things don't go as planned, when we see our dreams in pieces on the ground. We tend to take one of these two approaches. Neither of these is healthy. Neither of these are the approaches that Paul took. Have you ever stopped to consider that that what you went through, although it happened to you, may not have been just for you. See, Paul's suffering was more than for Paul, right? It wasn't about Paul in that moment. It was for the imperial guards that are coming to Christ. It was for the future Roman emperor's family that would end up being Christians. It was for an empire. It was for a world that needs the gospel. Maybe it was last year. Maybe it was 30 years ago where that thing happened, where that dream didn't come to fruition, where that person was taken from you, where the career came to an end. I'll just encourage you that maybe it's time to take that and unlock that box and pull that thing out and see how God is going to use it to advance the gospel. You know, it's possible to be selfish with your suffering, right? To make it all about you instead of seeing that eternal perspective that Paul had. See, if Paul had taken uh, one of those approaches, right, to to stuff it down or to let it consume him and destroy him, uh, we would have lost so much. There would be no letters to churches. There'd be no evangelism to the guards. There'd be no sending messengers to report on his situation. If Paul had not done that, if Paul had done that, we wouldn't have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or Philemon in our Bibles today. If he had just given up and stopped writing, think about what would be lost We would be missing verses like we're saved by grace through faith if Paul had given up. What about Jesus himself as the supreme example of not being selfish with his suffering? You realize the entire reason Jesus suffered was for other people. He didn't need to do what he did for himself, right? I mean, he had everything going for him in heaven. He was sitting on the throne. He wasn't sinful. He wasn't the one that ruined everything. And yet he comes down and he suffers. He has nails driven through his limbs on a cross so that you don't have to. His suffering was on the behalf of other people. In place of other people. His suffering wasn't for himself. Think about it for a second. That thing you went through, you don't have to shout it out or anything, but I know you've got it in your head. Maybe you're going through it right now. Maybe you went through it a long time ago. Maybe it's been in a box for a long time. Who could avoid suffering by hearing your story? Who could find some healing knowing that they aren't the only ones to go through that? Or even this, think about this. Who might be emboldened hearing about what happened to you to then charge the gates of hell and say, that's not going to happen anymore. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to get involved in this ministry. I'm going to get involved in this charity, and we're going to stop that from happening. We're going to push back the darkness in this way. So maybe someone can get healing from your story. Maybe someone can get a fire lit underneath them from your story. But your story, what happened to you, what, what has been done to you, isn't just for you. Just like it wasn't just for Paul, So God, being all-knowing, knows the best way into dark places like the Roman Empire. God knew the best way to drive the gospel home 
in that situation. And like the, the evil, dark place that the Roman Empire was at the time, he knows the best way to drive the gospel home to your heart. He knows the best way to bring that light into dark places. Sometimes it's boldly preaching before emperors like Paul was ready to do. Right? Paul thought he was going there and he was going to have the nerve to stand in front of a man, like I said, who thought he was God and say, you're not God. Let me tell you about the God that you need to repent to and follow. Right? Sometimes it looks like that. Sometimes it takes that nerve to say, I don't care if I die, I'm going to do this. But other times it's, it's sharing with kind of a broken and a shaky voice how the enemy struck you in the worst way possible. And yet, you can look back now and see, no, God is using that for the advancement of the gospel. You think about the way that Judas betrayed Jesus, right? I mean, absolutely horrible. Like, we look at that and we say, like, how could you? And yet, God used that, didn't he? To bring about the sacrifice of the lamb that humanity needed. Nothing goes to waste. Everything is redeemed in the kingdom. So do you see how the gospel, it turns everything upside down. It shakes up our understanding of suffering and joy. To see how the suffering that you've experienced and that the enemy meant for evil will actually be used by God for good and the spreading of serious joy. So point number two, God is all powerful. God's opponents will ultimately serve his purpose. And we see that play out here. So in verse 15, starting there, it says, To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we look to Job's story as an example. Ultimately, Satan in that story becomes a, a servant, a pawn of God, right? Like he, He's actually serving God's purposes by reinforcing Job's love and joy in God. That is exactly the opposite of what he intended to do in that moment. He said, God, let me show you. If I take everything away from him, if I make him suffer, if his life isn't so comfortable and so cushy, he's not going to serve you anymore. And yet, what ends up happening is Job has this root of joy that just drives deep through rock and stone and finds its footing. And no matter what's taken from him, Family, career, wealth, health, all of that's gone. He turns to God after some grumbling and says, I'm going to serve you. In Jeremiah 27.6, we see King Nebuchadnezzar is called a servant of God by God. And not because he's you know, some faithful man. No, he's not. He's horrible. He's a tyrannical, evil, pagan king. And yet God says, my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. How is that? Well, it's because he's go- God's going to use Nebuchadnezzar to discipline Israel for their good. Right? There's going to be a time of suffering because that suffering is going to drive them back to the Lord. It's going to drive them away from their sin. It's going to push them towards righteousness. It's going to push them towards pursuing the God that they have walked away from. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, mostly because he just wouldn't shut up about his dreams and a coat his mom made him. 
Right? This seems extreme, but they sold him into slavery to get rid of this guy that won't stop talking and is really annoying. And what ends up happening, long story short, is that God puts him in a place of prominence in Egypt, makes him one of the most powerful men in all the world. And because of that, he's able to plan for a famine that's coming, and he ends up saving not only Egypt, but the family that Israel, the nation, will be born out of, the family and the nation that the Savior comes from. What they planned for evil, God used for good. And so back to Paul, he looks around and he sees how the Roman Empire is intending to silence him. They don't want the gospel. They don't want their God, Caesar. There are other many gods being challenged, right? That's a problem for them. So what do they do? They bring him into a prison and they surround him with imperial guards we're very close to Caesar, and he starts converting them. Can you imagine the frustrating situation for the Romans in this moment? Like, we can't get this guy to stop doing this. He looks around, Paul looks around, and he sees that although Rome in this time hates God and is trying to silence and squash the gospel, they're actually bringing it close to them. The, the Roman soldiers, the Roman leaders are serving God's purposes in this moment, Paul hears of preachers. They've got shady motives, and some of these men are preaching because they want to compete with Paul. You see this all the time, even today, among pastors, and it's really unfortunate. Others are preaching to stir up trouble and to help Paul's opponents build a case against him. So they're preaching the gospel, Paul says, but it's, it's because they want to stir up more problems for the Christians in the area. area. They're inauthentic Christians. They're actually not at all. They're almost like kind of spies on the inside. This tells us that even when we face opponents on all sides, right? And the church has always faced opponents on all sides. Like Troy and I were just talking about this today, that we have this heritage, this lineage. If we look back through Christian history of every generation has had to make a choice. Every generation has had opponents, whether they be ideological or theological or cultural, uh, whatever, governmental, that the church has always been met with opposition. And though we have enemies, and though the church has these opponents, she's not going to be left behind. That she's going to be preserved. That she is the bride, and he's going to take care of his bride. That God is working out a plan, and, and even as Satan and the enemy, they, they try to pull off these schemes, they're actually servants. Their pawns. Everything that they try to do gets flipped on its head to produce something for the kingdom. Our God is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one who determines the beginning from the end. His plans will not be thwarted. And we're told this consistently throughout Scripture. So, God is all-knowing. He knows the best way into the dark places. God is all-powerful. God's opponents will ultimately serve his purposes. And third, God is all-good. God is all good, even when you suffer for him. Your circumstances do not determine the character of God. What you've gone through does not tell you something about God's character. It's how he uses what you're going through. So verse 20, my eager expectation and, and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. 
And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress in joining the faith. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ, Jesus, may abound. So Paul wanted to live and die well. I trust that we want to live well. But I think the harder question is, like, are we ready and willing to die well? What does that mean to die well? I'm not just talking about martyrdom, which we're going to hear about more in just, just a minute. I'm talking about being used every moment of our lives, well into old age and unto death, to serve, worship, and glorify God. Paul was a Roman citizen. He could have recanted Christ. He could have honestly just stopped talking in, in a more neutral way and slowly, slowly disappeared into a life of comfort if he wanted to. He was a tent maker. He had things he could have fallen back on for financial gain, and everything would have been fine and comfortable, but he pressed on. He kept going. He did not retire from kingdom work. Paul wrung himself out for the gospel. If he was going to live, he's going he's gonna to give it all of himself. He's going to give all of himself to Christ. And if he was going to die, he was going to do it full of joy, because finally the work is done. He gets to walk through those gates and embrace the Savior that has carried him and sustained him and showed him how he was at work his entire life. He was going to get that moment where the suffering is gone and the pain is gone and the thorn in his side is gone. He gets to just be there. He gets to just reap the rewards of following his Savior unto death. Around 80 years after Paul's death, we find someone named Bishop Polycarp. He was, he was martyred. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John himself. Right, so Polycarp, I just want, that needs to settle in for a second. Polycarp was a confirmed disciple of John. Right, the John that wrote the Gospel of John. The John uh, that wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The John that wrote Revelation. That John. That's the John that Polycarp studied under. Right, so this guy's very close to apostolic authority. He would have grown up hearing stories about Jesus and the disciples and Paul, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of other faithful Christians from his mentor, John. Warned that his arrest was impending, elderly Bishop Polycarp has left Smyrna and hidden in a farmhouse. The threat on his life is real. Smyrnans have recently executed several Christians for their faith. Now a pagan mob is demanding the bishop's life. Smyrnans are fiercely loyal to Rome and to the old gods. Kill the church leader, they reason, and his church will also die. The governor dispatches soldiers to track down the old man, who has the distinction of being one of the last churchmen who actually studied at the feet of one of the Lord's apostles, the long-lived John. The soldiers care nothing about this. Intent on locating him, they torture witnesses who reveal Polycarp's whereabouts. His hiding place betrayed, Polycarp moves to another, one must face boldly, face martyrdom boldly when it comes, he believes, but no one should seek it. The authorities discover where he is hiding and soldiers arrive to arrest him. He welcomes them, he welcomes them, as if they are old friends, and he asks that they be served food and drink, requesting only an hour to pray before being marched to the arena. They agree. Overhearing his godly prayers, the soldiers wonder why they are even arresting him. Surely this is... A good man, they allow the hour to stretch into two. 
Finally, they can delay no longer. They haul Polycarp in. When he nears the city, a heathen magistrate approaches in a chariot and takes Polycarp into it. The magistrate tries to persuade the Christian to sacrifice to the gods. But finding that he can make no headway with him, he pushes him out of the chariot so roughly that he falls and scrapes open the flesh on his shin, showing as little pain as possible. The elderly bishop limps behind the soldiers into the amphitheater where great numbers of people are gathered. At the sight of him, the mob sets up loud cries of rage and savage delight. But Polycarp hears a voice telling him, Be strong and play the man. Consequently, he does not allow the spite of the crowd to trouble him. The governor asks him to deny Christ and promises that if he will, his life will be spared. But the faithful bishop answers, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior now? When Polycarp rejects further pressures to deny Christ and save himself, the governor threatens to burn him. Polycarp turns the tables and warns him of eternal fire. The governor ignores the warning and orders the execution to proceed. The soldiers prepare to nail Polycarp to the stake, but he assures them nails won't be needed. So he's tied instead. The fire is lit and the flames rise around him. But what is this? The fire parts around Polycarp. It is as if the flames avoid him. Eyewitnesses claim his body glowed like gold in the fire. Finally, a soldier whose usual task is to put wounded animals out of their misery executes the bishop with a sword. The good old man is dead an inspiration to others who will perish in similar circumstances for centuries to come. So from Paul to Polycarp, roughly there's a handful of decades, maybe 50 to 80 decades, right? I'm not exactly sure on the dating there, but it's right in that time frame. From Polycarp, so 200 years after Polycarp was burned at the stake, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Paul's dreams were in pieces on the floor as he wrote his letter to the Philippians. He dreamed of preaching bravely in Rome to thousands of people. Instead, he remained in prison witnessing to a few imperial guards. As he writes to his church, his tone isn't defeated, though, is it? How many times do we see the words rejoice, right? So that you may rejoice. He's like, don't worry, guys. It's actually going really well. They're like, you're in prison, Paul. He's like, I know, but I'm converting the guards. And then they're carrying the message into the palace, into the temples, into the city streets. That's what's happening in this moment. He's not defeated. He's hopeful. He's joyful. No, Paul looks down at his dreams that are they're scattered across the floor in thousands of pieces, just like a mirror that's fallen from the wall and shattered glass everywhere. And he doesn't understand exactly what's going on, but he's looking at this, and then he's watching, because Paul is patient, because Paul is faithful, even when he can't understand. He's watching as God is beginning to pick up the individual pieces, and God is forming something new out of those pieces. And Paul has the faith and the joy in Christ, the maturity of faith, to look at that and say, you know what? That's better than what I had planned. He, he looks at what God is forming, what God is molding, and he says, that is so much more beautiful 
and more effective and makes so much more sense than anything that I could have come up with on my own. I'm going to trust you as you're doing this. He says, yes, this is much better. Worship team, if you'd like to join me, this would be a good time to do that. You see, the thing is that today there's still people, every day, every person, who've experienced this or are going to experience this. Where we look around and we see that our dreams are shattered on the floor. And we don't understand what's happening. We thought we even had a good thing. Maybe it was even a ministry, right, that you were trying to put together. Something beautiful like Paul. He was just trying to preach to people that needed to hear it. And he didn't understand why this isn't working out the way that he wanted it to. And there's people in this room right now. There's people listening to my voice right now whose dreams are shattered on the ground. And you don't understand what's happening. You don't know why this is playing out this way. You thought you had a good thing. You thought you had done your work. You thought you had planned it out. And God says, let me smash that and I'll make something better and give it back to you. And you'll see the purpose in all of this. You'll actually be able to find joy in the better thing that I have for you. So, of course, the, the invitation this morning at the end is, is for salvation. I mean, if you don't know Christ, then I, I have to backtrack several sermons, okay? Um, if you don't know Christ, then, then you don't have access to this joy. That, that's not for you in this moment. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to exclude you. I'm just saying that the, the Bible excludes you from that in this moment until you place your faith in Christ. And the most loving thing I can do is tell you that and not let you have a false sense of hope as you leave this building. So if that's something that you want, you come down to the front after this. I'll introduce you to the Christ, to the God that allows someone to have joy while he's in prison waiting to be executed. Um, For the rest of us, those whose dreams are on the ground, those whose dreams are in pieces, those who have not yet seen God begin to put them back together, uh, you can come down here and you can get prayer. I'll pray with you. Deacons will come find you, like whatever but you'll be ministered to here in this moment. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are, that you know best, that your plans are better, that you have the power to bring about the good that you would like to see in us and in the world. Thank you for conquering the dark places in our hearts. Thank you for pushing back the darkness in our communities and our families. Father, I pray that we would, as an entire church, as a congregation, as a people, resemble Paul's attitude in these moments. Where we don't turn our backs on you when things are hard. Where we don't see our circumstances as indicators of your character. That we know that you're wasting nothing. That you're redeeming all things back to yourself. And that we would be a people that trust and wait for you. And I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Go in peace this morning. We're going to have a business meeting here. Uh, If you're not a member, you're welcome to stay, but only members can vote at this time.